You're listening to the Platinum Standard in Paranormal Talk, Paratopia, with Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney. Well now, here we are. Welcome everyone to Paratopia. Uh, as you can tell, maybe, things are a little different. You know, because this ain't one of them uh, standard edition reissue shows. Oh no, this is brand new. And it is not a repeat, therefore, of last week's even though Ted Rowe is the guest. You see, I had this this dream, this idea, that uh, I would do a few follow-ups here and there where uh, where I wanted to. And one of them was Ted Rowe. Um, because everyone sounds suspiciously like NARCAP as they talk about UFOs nowadays, and yet I don't really hear much about NARCAP. Uh, so I wanted to know how that all shook out over the last decade. And... Um, my plan was to put this out on a Sunday um, so that you would have time to listen to the episode and then you'd listen to this and all would be well. It'd be supplemental material, but a brand new show. Um, but then it turns out that this week's episode should be, if we were to follow the, follow the, the Paratopia script, um, the episode, the first appearance of Dennis McKenna, Dr. Dennis McKenna. And um, it's a pivotal episode, and I don't want it to be uh, overshadowed by what actually took place with Ted Rowe on this, what you're going to listen to, because it turned out to not just be a nice little tidy follow-up. The first hour is is that, approximately, and then the last 25 minutes or so, um, well, you'll see. It might be newsworthy in terms of ufology. I don't know. It definitely warrants a disclaimer that the views and opinions of the guest do not necessarily reflect those of the host or the show. And also, I'm no psychologist or therapist in any way. Does that cover it? It's a friggin' podcast, people. I mean, come on. So I won't spoil anything for you here up front. Let's just get right to it, and then we'll have a little discussion about what we've heard afterwards. Um, Ted Rowe is still, at this point, maybe not after this interview, uh, the director of NARCAP. Uh, He's also an experiencer, and um, he's one of the few people in ufology who does not really want to be here, uh, except that he's had these experiences. And the reason he doesn't want to be here is um, completely understandable. Most people in ufology are uh, garbage, and um, who wants to be associated with that, except that, like, what choice do you have when this is in your life? We all get that, right? Um, so, director of NARCAP, experiencer of uh, UFO, UAP shenanigans, and also um, the man who, we'll discuss this a little bit during the interview, but the man who uh, invited me to this island, well, he invited, he had an open invite to the island, and I accepted and. Um, so technically he's, he's a good portion of the reason, arguably all the reason that I'm here (laughs) because I came and I fell in love with the island. Um, so I have Ted Rowe to thank for that. And we all have Ted Rowe to thank for bringing some rational component to something that is, you know, topics that are otherwise treated irrationally, even by rationally intentioned people so there's that 
All right. Let's say aloha to Ted and then talk about him behind his back afterwards. Aloha, Nui Loa. It's a pleasure to be here again. First time, what? Last time I was here was what, 2008? Uh, the first time was 2009, and then I think the last time might have been, I don't know, a couple of years later or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, well, it's nice to be here again. And you're still representing NARCAP, and I have I, I have to ask you, I mean, the obvious to me question is now, because we just, um, as of this recording on Friday, released, re-released your episode, uh, your first episode of Paratopia, so that's 2009. And in 2009, you were the only okay. person I knew who used the term UAP. You were the only person I knew, and the only NARCAP was the only outfit I knew, who talked about UFOs slash UAP in terms of Air Force, flight risk, this type of language. And now, you know, here we are a decade later, <laughs> and it's the mainstream. <laughs> That's the mainstream terminology, but I don't hear NARCAP associated with that. How did this happen? What What went on in a decade that you changed the language and the structure of the way this is talked about? But somehow NARCAP isn't in that larger conversation. It's these other crap organizations. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, we, we, we first introduced our definition of the term in 1999 when Dr. Hanks uh, released our first paper, which was Aviation Safety in America, a Previously Neglected Factor. And we, we resolved at that point to use the UAP term instead of UFO a UAP light, UAP object, right? Because it's more accurate, more concise. Um, and also the UFO term carried a lot of baggage. So we, we stuck to that and it was in all of our papers. We used it every time we talked to anyone. Eventually we ended up briefing congressmen in 2003 and the term got handed over to the Podesta group who, who sort of hosted our effort. And we heard Hillary Clinton talking about it at one point uh, as, as UAP being the new term. And then it, it just seemed to go viral, particularly in the last five or six years. Uh, we, we were on a steady percolation using it in all our publications. And, uh, and, and a lot of our foreign allies use a similar terminology, anomalous aerial phenomena, this kind of thing. Um, so... It, it wasn't that out of stretch for the global mainstream, but it, but it was for, for the United States. And then it just took off, and all of a sudden, uh, the government. I, I watched Senator Warner on the to the White House talking about UAP and aviation safety, and I realized that our influence had finally percolated up to a fairly high level. We, we've been pushing aviation safety for 20 years. We only study aviation safety cases, and uh, and we've been advising. Uh, about aviation safety factors and unidentified aerial phenomena for, for the full 20 years. And I wrote an advisory a few years ago on the subject. And, and I've seen it go viral, but a lot of the folks I know that are using the term don't know the definition, uh, aren't aware that there is one. Um, it just became chic, I guess. It just went viral. Um, I had hoped I had hoped that it, that it, would, it would carry the connotation with it that we intended, but it hasn't in many contexts. There's been a couple of situations where it has worked out for us, though, and, um, and uh, it gives me a little hope in seeing that. 
uh, U.S. Navy adopted aviation safety concerns and our terminology, uh, and we're seeing it elsewhere. So I guess I guess that's the end goal, whether or not I get the attaboys or not, really isn't that important. So when when you first started talking about it in terms of aviation safety, I mean, I assume that was to take the emphasis off of um, aliens and, and this sort of thing. Um, was that because, I, well, I'm sure it's both, but which is the more <laughs> reason? Wh- which is the greater reason? Because aliens is unprovable and, and a non-starter or because aviation safety is something that politicians might feel comfortable addressing? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Jeremy. I mean, that's, that, that's what I like talking to you. You can get right to the root of it. Um, Dr. Haynes and I talked about it quite a while uh, when, when we decided to, to put the term on. Um, he had come to me with, a, with his first study and said that, that aviation factors were clearly an issue. And, I, and, and to me, that was an inroad into uh, discussion on the, the subject with a straight face without having to talk about the doom of the world and little gray men. And uh, uh, it, it, gave a, it gave, aside from being practical, because there are safety factors involved and, and they do cause problems. In the, in the DNI report last June, the Navy reported, I think it was 11 incidents uh, of near mid air collisions and this sort of thing, safety factors. And the DNI report had a large section on aviation safety issues. Uh, so, so it's a real situation, but it's also a big leaf. It gives our leaders a chance to address and look at the topic without by degree, you know, bite size yeah. pieces without having to take the take on the whole story at once. Um, and and that was a bit calculated by Dr. Gaines and I. We, we we did intend that. Okay, and I don't know if you pay attention to the pop culture aspect or even the the trickling in in and out of <laughs> ufology with this new terminology and, and sort of framing of it. But have you noticed a difference? Um, it, has it changed anything fundamental in the way that even ufologists now are forced to tackle the subject? Like, are they are they more serious people now? Do you think as a result of this, just in the last few years? Or not? Uh, you know, I, I I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think the ones, those amongst us who were who were seriously working to resolve this matter and, and with standards of research and publication, um, are, are, are still the same people. We haven't had particularly more of them come on board yet, uh, with with some exceptions, I suppose, a few. Uh, but ufology is just done with the term and everything, what they do with everything, which is co-opted for their own uh, agendas or messaging or, or grift or whatever it is they're working on. They, they want to sound like they're in the know, so they use that term. I see, I see podcasters wielding it broadly, and I see it being used everywhere, but the context doesn't seem to be correct. A lot of folks don't understand that an unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, in our definition of the term as we presented it to the UFO community, 20-some years ago, is the last thing you call something after you've gone through every contortion you can go through to resolve it as something known and mundane. And if it continues to um, come back as unidentified, then you have an unidentified aerial phenomenon on your hands. It's not the first thing you call it. 
it's not a UAP because it's a light and you haven't identified it yet. It's a UAP because it's a light. You've gone through every contortion you can go through to prove it, and, and, and all mundane arguments have been exhausted. Then it's a UAP. And I don't, I don't think most of the community understands that. I don't think most of ufology proper really cares about research standards or much of anything else other than content and recognition. Um, sorry to be that blunt, but... I'll certainly get into that in a second. Years of... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but sure. let, let me just um, stick with this for one second, because I'm sure when, when, when young Ted Rowe is is lying in bed at night dreaming of the day when the world <laughs> changes and starts talking like he does. Uh, you, <laughs> there's a, it's got to be just satisfying at some point, just gratifying to have that moment. But is there a, uh, a concern that it gets co-opted by someone else? In other words, like from what I'm seeing, just in perusing these new TV shows, there's a huge factor in, you know, fake UFO researchers, of course, populate these TV shows um, but the military, there's always now like a military guy who's a special ops guy who's doing like some sort of Tom Cruise motif, you know, from Mission Impossible. Are you worried that this is going to get co-opted by the military or military agency who's going to say, yep, something about this is real. We'll take it from here and we'll be the the people who dole out the information on this and the guardians of this knowledge. Does that worry you or is that not a problem? No. No, it doesn't worry me because, um, I mean, the NDAA writer already includes that, you know, that, that, that the DOD will set up an office, right? And they're, they're going to be the go-to across, across the Pentagon for UAP info. And chances are it's going to be data in and nothing out. Um, and then the rest of us are, have free license. And there are things taking off right now. Uh, we're, we're familiar with the Galileo project, but there are other things taking off right now too, in parallel to that, that are going to lead to data and information. And we'll we'll be able to develop most everything that that the military knows in the public domain, and probably as quick. You know, um, okay. Given the data we already have. Okay. I, I have confidence that. that it's not going to get sequestered and pushed, pushed away from us if that, that's what you're asking. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so getting to the question of evidence and what constitutes good evidence when you're talking about a light in the sky, essentially, or footage of a light, what is the difference? Like, what can you uh, gain from looking at footage of a light in the sky that the average UFO researcher is missing? Well, it's always context. Jeremy, you need to know it's it, you can't be just a light traveling across the screen. You, you need to know more about it. Um, for example, the last light in the sky video I looked at was uh, a, uh, a cell phone video from from the cockpit of a UAP pacing an airliner, uh, and it was a, a nighttime encounter with a. Uh, they described it as a teardrop-shaped light, uh, yellow light that was paced their airliner for 32 minutes and they turned their cell phone on it and the phone uh, auto focused back and forth between the light and the and the windscreen and so you've got more of a bouquet than you got a, 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 an actual good image of the of the light but you have the air crew talking and then they turn their camera around and they aim it at the uh, uh, at their uh, monitor which is recording their their weather radar and their ACAS, their 
airborne collision avoidance system radar. They, they were flying 767, so they had that on board and uh, showing that, that what they were seeing outside their window was not detectable on their collision avoidance systems, um, which is something that we've I've said all along is that UAP are intermittently detected on radar, and that there's reasons for that that I, I um, don't have to go into right now. But it, so so you've got the context, and then you start looking at the light. You just look at it. What, what color is it, and how has that been corrupted by the camera? Um, what, what does the eyewitness say the color was? Um, I have some ideas about well, plasma and emission spectra related to atmospheric atoms. Uh, so when we see orange, for example, it might be helium, uh, it being excited, uh, ionized. Um, it, uh, if, we, if we saw violet, we might think it was oxygen. If we saw blue, we'd think of uh, nitrogen. If we saw neon, it'd be red. So there are things that we look for when we look at the color of the light as well. And then what I'm all looking for is contrail. Is it, is it leaving a tail behind it or not? And how long and pronounced is that tail? Um, uh, because it's, it's my contention that bonafide UAP versus meteors don't have long, con, long tails or contrail behind them. They're in thermodynamic, uh, they're not in thermodynamic equilibrium, meaning they're very hot, very close to them, and they're very cool not terribly far away. So uh, unlike a meteor that would just stream a contrail heat and, and atmospheric particles behind it as it, as it falls to Earth at 30,000 miles an hour. So uh, I'm, there, that, that's where we go. We're looking for context. We're looking for a data-rich case that, that has a witness, that has, has video, that has radar, you know, as much instrumentation as we can pull in it as possible. Um, otherwise, a light in the sky isn't necessarily going to move me. I'm going to shrug and say that's interesting, but I'm not going to devote resources and time to it. When, when I do have, when the when the cases that have data that I can use, instrumented data, come, they take a lot of resource. It takes a lot of attention to work them through. Um, and without that, I don't. What's the point in writing the paper? Right. So. Well, when when you um... that's my approach. Uh, are thinking about the, the the color coordination with a molecule or an element or something? Is, 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 are you also thinking about what the function w might be? So if you see orange and you think hydrogen, do you think what the function of of being that color is to the to the UAP? You know it, that that's a little bit hard to determine. But one thing I can think about with ionization, for example, is that um, first off, we use uh, uh, plasma, what do they call them? Plasma actuators uh, for a lot of things in, in aviation, and they're coming online to be used more. And what they do is they create plasma. Plasma is created by an electron stream, or, or usually, or by RF frequency or microwave. There's a couple of ways you can do an ion ionization, but generally, an actuator uses an electron stream, and then and that that breaks up the atmospheric atoms around it and depending on, on what's in a, in a fairly general way. So you'll get more of a whitish uh, coloration off of it. They're using these to replace the moving wing surfaces on aircraft because you can control airflow over a wing using these things. And it's much more efficient so you can control the gas or the fuel usage of the aircraft much more precisely using these uh, adjuncts to control surfaces. Um, 
Also, electron streams are being used to actually propel devices. There's an, there's a, an experimental craft out there called a wingless electromagnetic aerial vehicle, WEAV it's called. It's fairly small, um, but it uses electron streams over its surface to create plasma and then to move. And it can move, it can approximate the movement of UAP to a degree. Um, and it, and it also might serve for transmedium travel, so if moving from air to water, knowing that they're both fluid mediums, uh, the plasma would be helpful in, in breaking up uh, atoms and molecules in the immediate environment to allow the object to move through the environment more cleanly, probably if it's engaging some other actual propulsion system. It, it clears the environment of any matter around it and then moves. Uh, just a guess. Hmm. Uh, so, and the other thing is that plasma plasma can absorb radar, and it's used on stealth aircraft specifically to uh, cut the radar cross section or to to make reflective areas less more absorbent more absorbent uh, for radar signal, so that they don't bounce back. Uh, so there's a couple of things. It also obscures the view. Uh, the one I saw in Kalakakua. Uh, it, it it completely obscured the view of, of the device once it went into that plasma mode. So it, it could have a number of functions if we're looking at a technology. It could have a number of functions. Right. Well, maybe we need to talk about that, Kiala Kakua, because I don't think... I mean, if that, that happened, you we were talking off-air about this in, uh, the other day, and you um, said it happened in 2015, so probably never made the show. <laughs> um, but you said that it changed your mind about um, hotspots, essentially, about places where UFOs or UAP uh, recurringly show up. Um, so do, do you want to get into that and tell people what that's about and then, you know, how NARCAP is approaching the issue of hotspots? We, we could do a little bit of that. I, I actually, I, I was converted on the hotspot matter back in 2003, I think it was, when I spent some time out of sight with Erling Strand. Oh, wait a second, uh, wait a second. You just reminded me. You just reminded me. Tyler Cokejohn, Dr. Tyler Cokejohn, out of Arizona, asked me to ask you a question. I couldn't remember what it is, but I think it is this, which is right. So you're talking, Is that's the place in Arizona, the hotspot in Arizona, I think you did talk about on the show, about going and finding a place and all that. Has there been follow-up with Mm -hmm. that? Have you gone back to that place? Uh, Have you brought equipment and all that? Okay. Yes. Yes, I've I've gone back there. Um, And as far as I know, nobody else is working the site right now. The only other people to know that know of it are Erling Strand and Dr. Teodorani. And uh, because it's a native site and an active native worship site, and there's a lot of archaeology around there, it's the kind of place where you don't want to call attention to it in a big way. Um, the 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 Hawaiian spot is probably better for that, um, but but the Hawaiian spot is really kind of a classic. It's a classic example of, of a UAP hotspot, um, and and it's something that I'd been told about for years before I actually saw it myself. Uh, the locals there have been talking about UFOs both above and below the surface for as long as I've been going there. And I, I, I became friends with the priestess who who keep who kept the temple at Kealakekua Bay, the Hikiao. They're the great platform temple there at, at K-Bay. Um, and when she found out that I was a UFO guy, she uh, 
she came to me and she said, Brother, the UFOs, they come out of the water right over there. They come in and they hover over the poly and collect the mana. And they go up them, they go Malka and disappear in the Keopuka up by Choice Mart. <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's kind of interesting because I've been hearing it around the village and, and been hearing it from others. And, uh, 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 and then one night I, I was just down there. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning and the tide had just, it was just at the very bottom of the tide, so there was just no swell and just glassy water and moonlight and light breeze through the palm trees. And sure as hell, I look out to the mouth of the bay and I see this orange ball of light coming towards me. And um, uh, I'm sitting there in the corner of the temple watching. And, and as it gets closer, I realize I'm seeing a, like a soap bubble, an orange soap bubble. And inside of it, touching all the rim on the inside of the soap bubble was, um, well, a flying saucer. And uh, it was pretty good sized. Um, the thing approached towards the beach. Uh, and when it got over the beach, like pretty much directly over the beach, it was about 100 feet to my right and maybe, maybe 50, 75 feet off the ground. Um, it went from having this orange bubble around it and being a clearly visible flying saucer to a just a, a plasma blob. It just went boom, you know, and, and I, I could feel it, but what was interesting, I was so close. I should have felt heat coming off of it. And I didn't, it, it, it uh, um, there was no, I, I could feel air displacement when this thing fired up and, and it completely obscured its entire view. You couldn't see it. And then it went up the ravine behind the beach there at Calicacua Bay. It went up, over the top of the, uh, uh, the the rim there, where the highway on the Po'opo is, and then disappeared in Keopuka Heights, somewhere up up the ridge from there. It was out of my sight. I don't know if it disappeared at Keopuka Heights or not, but it was it was going exactly there. And, you know, three quarters of her story was right. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt on the last part. Um, Keopuka means uh, white, clear, transparent. Uh, uh, Ko part and Puka means whole tunnel passageway gate. Uh, Kalakaku Kula means gateway of the gods, and a lot of the the anthropologists have explained this as as it being uh, that the king's procession could walk up the the, the ridge line behind the the cliff uh, in such a way that it would, when they did the switchback and they got to the top, their torches would blend with the the starlight behind them, and they would you know gateway of the gods, right? Um, and uh, it, it, compared to what I just saw, that sounded like nonsense. And, I, I, and Aka gave me the nod when I asked her about that. I said, is that, is this the reason they call it gateway of the gods? And she smiled at me and that big giant Cheshire cat smile of hers and said, yes. So there's the story behind that. And in a nutshell, there's a lot more to it, but that's, that's the, that's the general story. In terms of like NARCAP and trying to bring that that element to, um, you know, legitimacy in quotes, let's put that in quotes, um, in a public way through the media, through politicians, you know, the way you've been doing with aviation safety, how would you approach that or would you? Is that is that out of the purview of NARCAP to tackle a hotspot like that? No, no, it isn't. The fact is we're trying to get data on UAP to understand them, to improve aviation ha- safety and enhanced scientific knowledge of UAP. Uh, and the more we know about UAP, the better we can understand their influence on aviation safety. So if we can watch these things, we can watch them go through their plasma modes and their operating modes and 
and listen and pay attention to them, uh, we can gain data that might be helpful to the aviation system for mitigating safety-related incidents. May give us a way to sense them or detect them. May maybe we can come up with an onboard system that, that pilots will know they're around. Um, and this is important. This is how this is kind of how we ended up where we are in this current situation of of openness or opening around this subject is that uh, pilots in 2014 had their sensor packs replaced on their F-18s, upgraded, and they were upgraded in a way that they started seeing things that they weren't seeing in them in their previous uh, with their previous equipment, and that that led to a number of observations and incidents and. I, Ryan Graves speaks about that in his presentation to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics last August. Um, uh, so basically trying to understand the instruments that would allow us to detect and see these things and to mitigate uh, threats to safety. Because it isn't just the UAT and its, uh, its desire or willingness not to be hit by an airplane. It's, it's, it's what the pilots do when they see the things. And right now, the situation is that the air crews are unprepared, unidentified aerial phenomena are unexpected, and they're unpredictable. And that's really just a recipe for disaster if it hasn't already happened. And I, you know, I'm of the opinion it has, but you know, it's an opinion at this point. Do you see any evidence that um, that there's something that is? you know, sort of toying with us, almost like a space animal, like a dolphin in the sky kind of thing. You know, like maybe plasmas are alive in some way and they play with us. Well, um... I'm like, what does the behavior look like, I guess, is my question. I thought about it. It can vary. Um, uh, First off, uh, of the 100 aviation safety cases that I looked at um, were American air crews and aircraft. 44 of them involved balls of light. So they, balls of light make up a significant re- portion of the safety-related problems as we know them right now. We need more data. It's a small data set. We need a lot more to really get a good picture of it. But that was the trend that level. And what we saw were a variety of behaviors. Sometimes they were singular trajectories, like like this um, uh, one pacing the, the aircraft over Mexico. Sometimes they're dynamic trajectories where the, the UAT moved in to multiple points around the aircraft. We had one case where they did barrel ropes, rolls around the aircraft, uh, corkscrew pattern around the outer dimensions of the aircraft. Um, we've had a lot of close pacing, near mid-air collisions, uh, collision headings, loss of separation. Of course, radar transparency doesn't help. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, incursions over restricted airspace as well. So... Uh, the, the behaviors are, because they're so dynamic and um, they don't, nearly as I can tell, they move non-inertially. They, they don't experience resistance to change in heading or velocity. Okay, so they can really go in any direction at any point as fast as they want and come to sudden stops and so on. And it's a kind of movement we're not used to looking at. And it, it gives them the ability to do pretty much anything they want to in the environment. Um, I've often wondered whether these balls of light are, are, are masking a solid or whether there's some kind of uh, a quantum system, a different type of machine that's, that's uh, organized in a different way that can collect data, that can be operated 
maybe you're seeing the expression of an operator when you're seeing these movements that are considered almost playful. Um, you know, you, there, there, there could be an intelligence operating behind it. I have a hard time thinking of the, the, the plasma entity itself as an entity. Uh, I see it as an extension of technology that's probably operated non-locally. Uh, again, you know, that in 575 will get you a frappuccino at Starbucks, but, but that's kind of where I, <laughs> I, I've tried to stick to technical understandings where I can. <laughs> well, when you saw the, uh, the orange ball come out of Kealakekua Bay, uh, did you say that, that you said it had sort of a flying disc in it and that collapsed in on itself? It, it morphed into something else? Or did I misunderstand that? Well, it, the disc was there. No, no. What it was was here's a disc, right? And imagine a, a flying saucer, a disc suspended in a soap bubble. And this soap bubble, it happened to be orange, which is the um, uh, emission frequency of helium. Okay? And so here it is moving along inside this thing. And then when it got over the beach, it lost the soap bubble and just turned into this huge flare uh, that, that obstructed the view of the disc that was inside of it. Clearly, okay. the disc was in there. It just now its entire surface was uh, uh, just plasma, just poof. Okay, and that's then, what you're saying. And that's that's a peak. You know, I'm guessing that thing is at least. 30, I'm guessing that thing was at least 30 feet across. So to 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 do that and to maintain that reaction is a huge energetic value. But that's not easy to do, and to have a device that's that size be able to maintain that plasma field around itself is is pretty impressive that, that's a lot of energy um same same with our balls of light how do they how do they keep generating that right and one thing that you had uh, uh also said about that was that you had two other witnesses there who you said hey look at this and they were hawaiian right and and they had a reaction to it as yeah. if yeah. they'd either seen it before or they were told by, you know, presumably by their elders, how to react when you see an orange ball of light or an orange disc come out of the water. I mean, their reaction was like a pat reaction that one would have in, in their culture, I suppose. Right? right. So, so there's, I mean... Right. They, they, they knew exactly what to do. So, so what happened was I'm sitting there on the beach, the disc is crossing onto the beach at this point and I look over at these two guys that are fishing and I and they're younger fellas and I and I point up and they look up and they, they both stood there for a minute kind of mouths open and then they both put their heads down and dropped one knee as this thing went by and went up the mountain and this is kind of consistent I, I think you're probably aware of this too with the night marchers and other types of light phenomena that that uh you're not to look on them. This goes back to the uh, the the native era, you know, pre-white era in Hawaii when you did look on royalty. You didn't let your shadow touch royalty, and and anything beyond that was even more lethal uh, as far as gods were concerned. So when when you're dealing with the supernatural or the paranormal, then then deference, particularly you knew your place if you were not royalty, then or specific actions you're expected to take. And if you encounter the marchers at night down in Kalapana or something and, and you know, and you're carrying fish, you leave your fish in the middle of the trail, you step to the side of the trail and you put your head down until they pass. Uh, that's, and you may not have your fish when they go. 
Right. Um, it just depends. But but these are these are traditions here in the islands to deal with these types of situations. They 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 consider a ball of light to be the will of someone who's spiteful towards you, followed you around. Uh, it, it's uh, it it's almost a curse following you, but it's literally you can see it. Um, so they have traditions around these things. They may not be accurate descriptions of what these things are about, but th- this is the way these people talk about what they see. Well, it would be interesting to know, uh, you know, I know there are probably all, but at least the ones that I know about, many uh, Indian nations, uh, they seem to have relationships with, uh, I don't know if you want to say these beings or whatever this is, they seem to have a relationship with it. And, um, but in Hawaii, it seems like the relationship is right, not to look at it, not, you know, to hold it in sort of a fearful regard in in that sense. So, uh, but is there something beyond that? Like if you were to talk to the, uh, did you say she was a priestess? Yes. Okay. Um, Would, would she, she, she's, she's a kumu. A kumu. She's a kumu. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Which is a priest. All right. Uh, There's, there's, there are kahuna, which are masters and like you know, like master boat builders or master fishermen or master warriors uh and then they're then they're they're kahuna uh and then they're like master craftsmen uh and then there are kumu and they carry the spiritual element the, the uh hula kumu for example that that maintain the, the hula allows around when, when we carved out that um uh, war canoe out of a single koa wood log, and when we finished it all, the hula kumu came and dedicated the boat and made Curtis, who led the effort to build this boat, uh, made him a kahuna. Hmm. So that's kind of the way it works. So the kahunas are the priests, and then there's sorcerers that are on the side of that, and then there are high priests. So, so would a kumu have a different knowing and or a different relationship with this coming out of the water than the average Hawaiian, to your knowledge? No, I'm 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 just speaking my opinion based on on the kumu I've sat with, and and the answer is that that they don't that they repel them. Okay, they consider them to be malevolent. They don't they don't like having them around, and they try to confront them if they can. Um, and these confrontations are kind of interesting. I heard a story of one who stood out at Mililihi and had a ball of light out off the beach hovering in front of him, and he stood there and he yelled at it for quite a while and eventually the thing, according to the story, it exploded. Um, the, the the relationship is kind of strained. And I have to wonder about this because I keep hearing all oh, the native people know all this and that about, about this situation. But when I was in uh, Australia, I think the time before last, I was up in Wonga Beach, which is up near the Daintree, where the Daintree enters the Great Barrier Reef up part, halfway up to Port Townsend, I suppose on the east coast and i spoke to some aboriginal elders there and asked them about ufos and what what their opinions were and they're they're frightened of them and they don't know what they are and and we're talking about a culture that's very old that's an oral tradition and in oral traditions names are everything you know uh in the hawaiian culture they can give you a thousand years of their tradition and names and everything and days and dates and who did what, when, and so on. And there are women in the culture here whose job is to memorize this stuff and to keep that memory. And some of it's been relegated to print. Uh, 
uh, but there's a lot more that's still waiting. And the same thing's true with our Australian friends. They 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 have a name for everything. Uh, everything about their relationship to the world is related to the names of the, the beings and the places and the, the, the experiences that exist in that world. And they don't have a name for UFOs. Okay, they don't. Uh, it, it's relatively new. They don't know what they are, and, um, uh, and, and they don't feel comfortable around them. Hmm. Well, so, that is interesting. And, and, in, and, in, and in the American Native culture, they talk about star people. Well, what a lot of Americans don't understand is that Native people are very literal, and when you listen to their stories, they're short, direct, and literal. And when they're talking about star people, they're talking about the stars. We're not talking about people that come from the stars. We're talking about the stars. And when they talk about the rock people, they're talking about the rocks. And the same thing with the, the ant people and, and everything else. It's literal. It's animist. And uh, so I'm not so sure that they have a lot to tell us other than perhaps specific incidents uh, where they encountered one or, or saw something. But I don't think that they, they have much of a tradition around this that's that informative, and I think it's kind of unfair to put them on it, put that on them, just in my opinion. Uh, um, well, I think that's... Given that... Hmm. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, I, I, it's okay. I'm, I'm just offering a perspective on this, and that, that you know, my, my, when you dig into this idea that Native people know more about this than the rest of us do, um, it doesn't seem to bear up. Um, I've spent time with shaman and... and drank ayahuasca and talked to priests and, and, you know, spent a lot of time poking around in these, these areas. And I don't come back with the information that's so popular in the media. So um, I'm not convinced right. that, that Native people know more than the rest of us on this subject. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely true about star people. Um, but uh, I think parallel to that, there is also, <laughs> from what I, again, I mean, from what I've learned from Teoks and Ghost Horse and from what I've uh, read, you know, I'm assuming these stories are true out of RD6 Killer Clark's trilogy of books of just going around and talking to people in uh, on the reservations here in America and, and um, also talking to uh, natives in, in Mexico and I think Canada. Um, they do have these experiences and they do seem to hearken back to Oh, right. Our grandparents had these experiences. Or one common refrain is, um, we used to have these types of experiences, but these aren't the beings that they had experiences with. We don't know who these people are, and they're creeped out by them uh, often, seems to be the case, at least in terms of these already six killer Clark books. But also there is the sense of coming from the stars, not so much, you know, star beings coming here, but yeah. that their home is the Pleiades or the wherever, you know, I think the Lakota, it's the Pleiades. And the, even in some Hawaiian traditions, the Pleiades, but I don't know, you know, in Hawaii, it gets tricky because <laughs> different, different Hawaiians and different well, places yeah. on different islands have, have different, you know, senses of where they come from and all that. So, um, but I think, well, and, it, yeah. And, and I think pop, I was just going to say, and I think popular culture kind of infuses a lot on top of this. I mean, you and I live in an area that has probably more witches per square foot than Sedonia. <laughs> you know, you know, 
more more menopausal divorce shaman <laughs> per, per square mile than, than than a lot of places and i think i think a lot of that kind of gets projected onto the the, the hawaiians too and, and onto other native people um i remember i i, I got a call one time this is um, you know fairly early on with narcap i got a call from a, a native american rights attorney a pretty famous one named fred bigjim uh he's in the nubiak Alaskan native man. And he sent me this book and it had three little aliens staring off the, out of the front page of it. So I immediately sat up and took a lot, look at that because that's right out of my own playbook. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it was a bit of fiction, but, but so I called him back after I read, it. I thought it was kind of a nice little screenplay kind of book and, uh, uh, and kind of informative. And then, um, so he tells me the story. He says, yeah, he said this, this one time I was out, uh, out on the tundra, we'd been hunting caribou and, um, uh, everybody had gone to camp and I'd kind of taken a long route because I was scouting and, and I sat down and I got quiet and I, I went to sleep for a little bit and I woke up and there was these three little, little gray standing around him, looking down at him. And, and, and he said it really scared him. And then, then he sat up and all of a sudden they weren't there anymore. And he ran my tail back to camp. And then when he got back to, to the village, he told his grandmother about it. She says, yeah, you got to watch out for those guys. You don't watch it, you'll end up working for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a certain pragmatism and a sensitivity about it. They, they, they do know that these things are in their environment. Um, and, uh, and like you said, the grandparents pass on the stories and, and, and so on. But, um, but I think... I, when I listen to those things, they're very similar to the stories my own grandparents told me about UFOs, and and, and eventually, I I'm telling my kids about the things that I've seen. Right. Um, it's a very natural and organic and human thing, but I I'm not sure it's necessarily. I I, I don't think that people should be grasping at straws with it. I, I, it has an anthropological value, but but if if we really want to understand this thing. Um, uh, there, there, there's a greater context it, that it's important to know that part of it. But I, I think that's given where we're at right now, there's more to learn. It's, it's a lot more uh, direct, you know, go find it and look at it. You're get, I think you're getting to two, boy, this is taking a turn, to, but this is actually really interesting because I think you're getting to a problem that we have, at least in this country. when we look at stuff like this and think about, other people looking at stuff like this, which is on the one hand, you're right in terms of like um, overblowing and, and putting all of it onto uh, native people, this great wisdom and knowledge when really what they have is, you know, at least um, an understanding that these things exist because they accept that they exist. Right. And so we see that and we go, well, they must know everything about them. No, they just accept. <laughs> Whereas we, don't accept generally uh, okay. the people of us who do accept are like the new age people who then project, they accept and then they project onto these phenomena and onto native people, all of their wish fulfillment stuff. So that's kind of what we're getting at. But at the same time, like the flip side issue is that researchers, I think uh, westernized and in particularly white researchers don't go back and ask other people because they want to be the ones to quote unquote discover it. And the discover the, the discovery thing may have already been discovered if you just asked 
people who knew in the first place. So I don't know how you I don't know how you square those two things. Well, it's it's ego, you know, and and the whole point is is it is it about your ego or is it about knowledge? And and it, and if you're dedicated to knowledge, then it really doesn't matter. You're just trying to bubble the truth up to a place where people can see it. Um, you know, the the Ojibwa Indians call uh, uh, refer to Sasquatch, you know, Bigfoot, as, as as they who watch from secret, and that's their name for them. They don't, uh, and they stay the hell away from them. They avoid them whenever they can, and um, but but they're a part of their environment, and they they uh, they're they're somewhat intertwined with their mythologies. But because they're real, they 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 keep they keep a boundary. They don't let them slip into storytelling entirely. Um, and but that doesn't mean they know anything about a Bigfoot or or where they they might know kind of where you could find one, but but they aren't intimate with them any more than they're intimate with native people or with 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 alien visitors. Right. You know, um, and, and they're working in the scope of their own experience and their own language. And it may be adequate, it may not, to, to really offer us what we want to understand about this or to make the make the, the gulf from their perspective to ours, right. you know, w- without losing much in translation. Um, okay. So that, that, that desire to be the one and to have that really fancy book cover and and go around and talk about what you know about Native people because you've associated with this Native person and that Native person at all. Um, it, it, it's one thing to use it as a guideline, you know, while you're, while you're putting your act together and, and making sure that, you know, you're, you're giving credit where credit's due. But, it's, but I've seen an awful lot of folks in this game not doing that at all, you know, just exploiting what they think they know or flat making up out of right. the Well, let me... Okay, um, this segues us back nicely because I did want to ask you just sort of where you fall on the idea that, like, even now, I'm still seeing footage that you've debunked of UFOs, footage out there that everyone should know by now it has been debunked, but they show up in these uh, these documentary series alongside, like, the Nimitz stuff, you know, all the new stuff that's come out since 2017 from the Navy. And one school of thought is... It doesn't matter if you mix and mingle hoaxed crap or misidentified crap with the real unidentified crap, uh, as long as it brings new eyeballs to the subject. It, what does it matter? Does it matter? <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's that, that's man getting to the heart of it again, Jeremy. Doesn't matter. Right? Part part of me says no, because this is infotainment, and you're you're. Your viewers, the, the people who are serious about understanding what this is about are not getting their information from television offerings. Uh, with very few exceptions, there are no television offerings that are that truly present information in a in, in a in a context that an intelligent person can build something on that that is actually an understanding. Um, and yeah, these zombie cases—I call them zombie cases—they they they continue to walk after their after they're long dead, um, uh, they keep recurring. We, we, we have new crops of noobs coming on board. We have uh, new content creators scrambling for notoriety, and, and they're grabbing whatever is out there, and they're not that discriminating. And I find the same thing with a lot of uh, television and uh, movie 
producers. They have that same, they, they aren't educated in the topic and they grasp at straws for whatever is handy uh, that, that seems to make the story. And, and I think when you're, for, for your average Joe's watching it who doesn't know real from non-real, I don't really feel that, that it makes a lot of difference to them. Um, it might tell you a little bit about, about the ethics of the production, the line producers, but, but, uh, um, but I really don't think it makes a lot of difference to your average person. Um, they're, they're not that discriminating to begin with. Uh, most of the time when I try to talk to people about this, the things I know about UFOs, the things I've learned about them, the, the flight dynamics and this kind of things, the things we've distilled from studying a hundred years of pilot cases, uh, most people's eyes glaze over. They don't have the time for it. They don't want to know it. If it takes more than a minute or so to explain, they're not available intellectually to, to, to write it out. Hmm. And so I, I don't really, I, I stopped really kind of railing against the, the social um, status quo a while back because I just realized that it was just keeping people entertained that really didn't, didn't need much more than that. You know, right. maybe, maybe if, we, if we get an action figure at Walmart or a bobblehead, they'll be up to speed about as far as they <laughs> want to be. But as, um, if, as far as you go as a researcher, it doesn't affect you to, to you know, walk into a meeting with people you're, you know, who are like, oh, yes, I'm dying to work with you because uh, I saw this thing about Billy Meyer or whatever, you know, the Phoenix Lights, whatever it is. And <laughs> and and I and so I'm all in. I mean, does that that doesn't affect you at all? You're like, great, you're all in. Let's do it. Or do you have to explain to them? Oh, well, does. you know, there is real stuff, but that's not the real stuff. And here's why. <laughs> it. it it does affect me, and, uh, and that's that's where I draw the line. You know, it's it's uh, the infotainment's fine when it's going on over there, but when you come into my domain, we're gonna we're gonna do this objectively and rationally, and we're going to accept that some of us have seen these things, and we're gonna push the, the stigma off of this, and we're gonna go at it with open minds, and we're gonna give we're gonna give deference to information that that's that's offered by people whose credibility is good, you know, verify you know, accept, but verify. And, uh, and we're going to use it to describe our research arc and move forward that there's no room for nonsense there. Yeah. And, uh, I don't really need believers in that situation. What I need are, are really good rational minds that, that know how to break things down. So on that front, who, who are the rational minds now in NARCAP? I, I realize that the NARCAP lineup has changed who is NARCAP now? <laughs> well, our numbers have dwindled <laughs> over the over the last uh, five five years. First, doc, Dr. Haynes stepped down in 2015. He he, he retired. He's in his mid 80s and um, and enjoying his 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 life on his home front. Um, and then, which left left me the reins of the organization, and we had a lot of problems. Um, there were a lot of aspects. I was the executive director for 15 years. I was the administrator for the science team, and then I helped with science and research as I could. Um, but my job was to manage organizational initiatives, operations issues, uh, personnel and personnel management, this kind of thing. Uh, we had 60 people on staff, and I, I there was an awful lot about our organization that didn't really it was very ponderous uh, that I, I didn't find to be particularly useful. 
Uh, so when everybody, when Dr. Haynes stepped back, I pretty much got rid of all the dead weight. We had all these people that were NARCAP associates and and uh, part of our program, but most of the time they, they never did anything. We had people on staff for 10 years that, that, that never produced a thing. And so I, I, I went through and purged. I got rid of pretty much pretty much everybody with, with one or two exceptions. And those are researchers who are willing to be involved, willing to stay behind the scenes, willing to let me bottleneck communication so that when, it, when, when people or information came to the organization, I would see it. It wouldn't go around me to Dr. Haynes. It wouldn't, people wouldn't sidestep me. If, I, if, if somebody came to me and said they wanted to talk to Dr. Haynes, well, I tried to stand them off and go talk to Dr. Haynes first, find out if he was available, and secondly, find out who they were and what they were doing in my organization. And oftentimes they would try and run around the end on me. Um, and I had people like Leslie Keene working with Dr. Haynes behind my back inside the organization and couldn't have it. So I, I restructured everything, um, bottleneck communications, kept the messaging to something very simple, and then just stayed focused on finding cases and um, uh, just being present. And that, that seemed to work pretty well for us. Uh, I've, I've done a few cases over the last few years. I've done, a, I wrote a, a pilot advisory, which I think is probably one of the better things I've produced for this effort. Uh, it, it, all of this visible on the narcap.org website. Um, and I, I, I had a number of documents that I had written that, that were sort of activist-oriented that kind of explained the nature of the problem as far as the FAA not taking pilot reports and how we were losing data left and right because of it, kind of focused on that. And then as things changed over the last couple of years um, and I started seeing our, our influence in the higher levels, I started writing to congressmen and managing all of that on my own. Uh, and uh, like I said, I, I've got... I've got three people behind me, and that's really all I need after 20 years of this. I, I, I just presented our preliminary findings to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and we're right at a juncture now where I could conceivably close down NARCAP without much pain. Where you could conceivably close down NARCAP? And become, yeah. and, and become something yeah. else, or just um, shut it down? Well, the function of what NARCAP is is, is about to be uh, taken over by other entities. Huh. Once once the FAA starts accepting pilot reports, we aren't going to be necessary anymore. When the FAA takes the pilot reports and exercises due diligence, then our, our, we've done what we came to do. We, we proved that they, there are safety factors involved. We, we proved that the system needed to pay attention. We advocated for our pilots and reporters, and we changed the system to the point where now our, our, our mission is no longer relevant. And that, that, that was a goal of 20 years, and I, I think we're pretty close. So, okay, so you're going to dissolve NARCAP, and then who takes up the mantle of NARCAP? Well, you know, last summer, I, um, myself and five other researchers were invited to present um, to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, which is the premier aviation sciences organization in the world. Uh, it, it's a professional society for just about all engineers, aviation scientists, uh, astronautics people, technicians, pilots, 
so on, many, very broad membership. They have about 60 technical committees that deal with every aspect of aviation science and, and astronautics. Uh, a lot of the safety initiatives, a lot of new equipment, a lot of new ideas uh, come from the AIAA. Uh, for example, supersonics are being developed right now, uh, starting with an initiative inside the AIAA with their own integration and outreach committee dedicated to supersonics and, and the development of it at all levels, all phases, all issues. Um, so they invited us to present at their AV21 conference on August 26th. And I, I went and presented our preliminary findings from NARCAP. Uh, after examining 100 years of pilot cases, I presented the general trends in, those, in that data. Uh, and it was very, very well received. Um, and the impression I got is that the aviation sciences community is, is going to work on this in the, uh, in the public domain and that, that uh, aviation safety and uh, UAP research and detection is going to continue and uh, probably expand way beyond anything NARCAP ever imagined it could do. Uh, so as I watch and look for those initiatives, and as I watch for the FAA to start take, taking pilot reports and processing them with due diligence, um, then I'll know that it's time to shut down NARCAP and, and, and perhaps I can find a, a place in, in one of those situations to uh, continue doing research. Or you could give it to Greer. I mean, I think he's available. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sensing no. Oh, well, you know, the, 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 uh, well, the selfless nature of, of him and his willingness to just really <laughs> do so much for other people. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll be a facetious there. Not good at it. Um, yeah, no, I, the, I don't think, I don't think anybody in this field has that that granular approach that we have. Uh, even MUFON way too diluted and dissolved uh, to, to be effective. They've probably got tons of good data in there, but, but who knows? Hmm. And, and the people that are involved in, in a lot of cases aren't disciplined in, in objectivity and critical thinking the way they should be. And notice I didn't say they, uh, they don't have PhDs. I don't have a PhD. I'm not, I, I, I'm a, I, I've trained my, my awareness. I've, I've trained my rationality and logic and, and, uh, and people that, that do that are every bit as effective in deduction as anyone else. It just, but there's just not a lot of that going on out there. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, that the real story in ufology is the a academic societies and the professional societies that are trying to pull together research groups and that are looking for good data and trained minds to, to, to interview. And, and ufology, 70 years of ufology has very little of that to offer. The, the, the hardly a working database, you know, and that's kind of the, the real story of this moment. Yeah. Wow. I wish other organizations had goals like that. Like as soon as they're irrelevant or redundant, uh, say goodbye. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's really mature. That's well, a really you know, mature I mean, position to take. Well, you know, it's what's the point? You know, if, if somebody else is doing all this, why do I need to beat my brains in any further? Believe me, you know, this is something we haven't touched on yet, Jeremy, and that's the human side of this, you know, for me. Okay. Let's talk about me for a minute. Okay. 
<laughs> I got <laughs> I, I've got 20 years of carrying this and and trying to do the right thing in a very hostile environment. Not only hostile in in the mainstream, but hostile inside of ufology. I have I have dealt with every kind of fruitcake, crackpot, egomaniac, some bitch that you could think of, and I've had enough of it. Um, I would rather do anything than what I'm doing, and I've felt that way for quite some time. But I, I feel that I have to do it because I have direct experience with the phenomena, and and the job isn't finished yet with NARCAP. Um, so, but once all that wraps up, then I'm free to go in another direction, and I have another direction that, that I'm working on, and and it, it's it's not going to change. It's going to change a lot, but but I'll still be doing a lot of what I'm doing now with NARCAP. So I'm not leaving UAP research, but I'm certainly leaving ufology. And then uh, NARCAP will become. And then you can write your tell-all book, and we can go free diving. Yes, yes, <laughs> do all of that. You know, I, that, that's that's a good plan. You, know, you me, and the dolphins <laughs> for the rest of it. Uh, huh. Well, I feel like <laughs> that. That's. Well, you can hmm. maybe you can come back and we can do this again because I would love to get into the you side of this. If sure. that's something you want to talk about, for sure. <laughs> well, sure, ha- happy to. But but the main thing to understand is that you know th- this has been a pretty thankless job, and and uh, it, I certainly didn't make any money at it. I, every every I paid for probably seventy eighty percent of whatever NARCAP has had in expenses. And I've traveled everywhere. I've turned. I've made it the first priority, no matter what. Even when I was homeless, I was running NARCAP from under a tree on a daily basis and keeping it working uh, and keeping the communications up and working with Dr. Ains and everybody else. They didn't know I was homeless. They didn't mean to. I shouldn't say homeless. I should say houseless. I, yes, I can attest to it. Yes, I I, so I, you know. I visited your tree a number of times. <laughs> So you know, and uh, um, uh, but but that that's a that's a product of exposure. I've been exposed to the phenomena, and I'm hypervigilant. I I have PTSD and general anxiety disorder, and uh, and I could not let it rest if my life depended on it. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm a little better with all of that now, but but that was that was how I lived for a lot of the time. And while I had all this PTSD and and anxiety. None of the big shots I was working with ever once asked me if I was okay or, or how I was doing or, you know, hey, what, what do you think about what you've been through? How are you feeling? Are you okay? I've noticed you're a little shrill lately. You know, why is that vein throbbing on your forehead? Um, you know, just, <laughs> just, just show some care and concern, and, and it was never there. And these were the best minds in the field. This was Dr. Vuli. It was Dr. Haynes. It was Dr. Heisch. Uh, all of these people, I was there because I had an experience in 1999, and I called Dr. Haynes. And actually, I didn't call Dr. Haynes. I called NASA Ames Research Center, and Dr. Haynes came out of the woodwork and uh, investigated. And then we we got together and put together NARCAP, and I worked with him every day for 15 years. Uh, but it it was uh, um, no, there was no human side of it for me. It was about performing as an administrator, being professional, and and trying to hold my my head together while it was while I was breaking up, I was falling apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been that way through the whole process. I'm I'm a lot stronger now and more healed. But 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 for a, a good portion of the time after that incident, um, I wasn't well at all. 
and it, and it showed in, in my inability, I answering emails at three o'clock in the morning on Christmas and, and ruining Thanksgiving dinners, talking too much, uh, just all of it, you know, I was a wreck and, and nobody on my team saw it or, or gave it the slightest bit of consideration. Well, they just saw that you were productive. sounds like. Well, that, that was it. That was it. And they were, they were focused on themselves. Right. Uh, Dr. Haynes had a real love with the camera. He liked to be in front of the camera. He um, he thought things that people were up to were good things. I, I had already decided that that certain situations were toxic. We had a I negotiated an agreement with the government of Chile to do research with their UAP research team, uh, the Committee for the Study of Anomalous Aerial Phenomena. And after we got involved with them, I realized that was probably a mistake. It was not a good idea. They invited us to be involved, but um, they're a military organization, and the standards for military and the motives for military are very different from science. Uh, and a lot of the decisions that they made, we didn't agree with, and ended up reflecting poorly on us. And and then we had, I had real internal problems, like Leslie Keene was our media director at NARCAP, and then all of a sudden I found out she was not only our media director, but she was the media director for the Chilean team and dating their executive secretary. And so here I am, I'm forced to remove Leslie King from my organization because of a conflict of interest and unprofessionalism that had been nurtured by the people inside of my organization. Hmm. Um, it was a huge struggle to hold standards of professionalism when people decided to deviate. Um, and again, it was for all these reasons and more that I streamlined NARCAP and changed how we do things, and I think it worked very well. Well, do you think that you um, you said that you've you're you're better with your experiences now than you were then? Do you was any of that worked through by working at NARCAP? Do you think, or was it all sort of on your own in spite of NARCAP? I think I think NARCAP was a really important exercise uh, for me as as a person with PTSD. Let's just talk about that for a second. I I got trauma. Uh, I have complex PTSD. It, it, it goes back to a rough childhood, um, a, a lot of lack of safety as a, as a youngster, and exposures to UAP all along the way. And it all fixated on the last time that I was triggered, which was by UAP. So I, I, I carry this trauma, and I thought by acting it out and by get, trying to get close to the phenomenon again and recreate the experience, I could somehow overcome that that it, it, the initial terror that I went through every time they showed up when I was younger. Uh, so it, it, it took work, but, but the things that really saved me, the things that really helped me were studying insight and awareness. I studied awareness training and I studied insight. I learned how to pay attention to myself to learn when I was, when I was in an anxiety cycle, you know, when I was, depressed, uh, no, learning how to notice my emotions, notice what trigger them and start to disarm those triggers. It's a lot of personal work. It's deep personal work. And it, and it's the kind of stuff that, that what in the beginning, there was nothing more important or bigger in front of me than UFOs, not the universe even. Okay. And when I finished getting about halfway through that personal work, I lived in a world that had UFOs in it, but it also had people and fish. And and some meditation and and mental training that grounded me as a being in my own right, 
with my own mind present in this world who's simply been exposed to something that is frightening. And, and I kept working that. Um, there was, I did it in a structured way. I studied the Satipatthana Sutra, um, which is the Buddhist teaching on, on awareness and insight. And, and I stuck to it for about six years. And that was probably the, the biggest single factor that helped me become comfortable with my own skin again. Before that, I, I, I was, I, well, I was the world's biggest pothead, you know, and, and cannabis is just one of these things that allows you to, to deal with anxiety. It's, it's chemistry is made for calming anxiety, and that's why it's so popular is because it, it works that way. It, it calms the brain from fight or flight. And, uh, um, and, and I've had no attraction to anything else. It's just, just that and because of that. Uh, but that, that habit has kind of died off a bit with me and, and so on. As you change, you become comfortable in your skin. Your awareness comes up in the present. I'm in a place now where instead of, you know, the next sound you hear when the UFO shows up is my pee running down my leg. Is, <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I'm actually able to look at them and gain data and walk towards them. Um, uh, engage the incident. So, but that took a lot of personal work. It was deep work. I've only slightly touched on it in this description, but it's kind of a way to show the path. Um, they, they call it a transformative experience. Um, I call it a, a, a mental breakdown or a, a, a psychotic break. Basically mm. you, you just disassemble. And I, I, I lived outdoors on the beach. I trained, uh, I taught free diving pretty darn good free diver and uh, taught more meditation and uh, teach sword uh, and got really good at all of that uh, and, and just focused on, on that, that training on, on the Sati Tantana and, uh, uh, and it carried me through and it's carried me to this point. I, it's, it's, it's a process. It takes time to deal with trauma and it doesn't matter. All trauma is the same. All anxiety is the same. It all, it all feels the same. It can be caused by different things, but it's the same sensation. You learn how to sit with it. You learn how to spot it. You learn how to not tolerate it. You learn what triggers it. You learn to disarm that, you know, and suddenly, you know, you don't have IBS anymore. You know, you, you don't, um, you can sit calmly and the urge to say something can be contained. Um, you're present and aware, and that's worth just about everything. When um, I know with free diving, you've had encounters with, giant marlin and sharks uh does this help you as well i mean did do you seek out or or is that part of what free diving does for you is the the encounter with terror and being calm in the face of it or is that just a happy well, circumstance you know one of the things <laughs> well um one of one of the things that people with trauma do particularly if they have a particular experience that's triggered them that some people do is, is they Try to recreate it. They 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 try to recreate it in a way where they come out on top, where they're not destroyed by it, where 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 it's a better circumstances. It's a do-over, you know, uh, and it's a way to give to 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 lever themselves out of the out of the chaos, you know, the, the churn that you're in when that happens. And um, for me, I used to compare it to getting up close to a big shark. Being somewhere in the ocean where you got nowhere to go and having a big shark's attention on you, I used to I used to compare having UAP approach you to being like that. And yes, I've been approached more than once. 
uh, by UAT. And so I'd always had an interest in freediving. I was a competitive swimmer as a kid, a pretty good one. I had national rank times, and I was a butterfly. And, uh, um, uh, but, but I always wanted to freedive. And when I, I, I got triggered by seeing some pretty good video of Terry Moss and the San Diego bottom scratchers out there hunting giant tuna with spear guns the size of two by fours. And, uh, um, I just fell in love with the idea. I learned that, that the best in the world, they weren't teaching freediving at the time, but the best in the world were taking training sessions over at Hona now, over at Two-Step. And I was living in the Bay Area, so I could get on a plane and fly over, you know, and then I could spend a weekend and then fly back. So I would, I would come and do that and train with the best freedivers in the world for a long time. So eventually my moment came. I was out there in the ocean. Uh, I was alone, and probably a quarter mile offshore, which is something I always do, and they tell you never to do, but I always do it, swim alone. And um, I had a big shark roll up on me, big tiger shark. Uh, and yeah, it's it, it was it was an uncomfortable moment, but it, it had nothing to do with what I'd been exposed to at, with UAP. I realized that there was nothing about that experience with the shark that had anything to do with what I was trying to recreate. And that, that was kind of sobering, and I, I got back on the ball and um, focused more on getting close to UAP, trying to find opportunities to get where they are and watch them and that and and see if there was anything more that could come of it. And so I worked on that. When was the last time you saw UAP or were up close and personal? Well, the, the last one I was really close to was the one on the beach there at K-Bay. Okay. Um, I've seen several on the island since. Um, I, I saw one that looked like a like a ping pong ball with a uh, a light that was lit from the inside, and I saw it drop vertical over the 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 hills there, well between you and Mauna Loa, in the hills there. Uh, uh, just that marker ninety three or so as you go around where the footprints are okay. out, out on the you know what I'm talking you know what I'm talking about. I think so. Um, yeah. No, Just marker. around the corner from where you did. I, I was coming home late at night, and I saw that drop into the uh, the upper hills over there at, uh, uh, behind your place, between between ninety marker ninety three and uh, Hawaiian Ocean View, and uh, um, and I've seen a couple of other things that that, that were. I, I saw I saw an orange light down near where you are. Um, Everyone sees things here, but me. <laughs> <laughs> my neighbors see things but i don't you see things but i don't this is great <laughs> well it, 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 your moment's coming buddy I, all that that that's all that means you know <laughs> you're, you're in a place where things repeat repeat and i don't know why but but there are places like that and you know it's funny because chalakaku is what maybe 40 miles up coast 50 miles up coast from there yeah. you know um and and yet the whole coastline has got this going on. I've heard stories all up and down the coast um, about balls of light in particular and, and occasionally objects. Yeah, I've got um, my hands full with wild boar, so I'm good. <laughs> I was going to tell you, a little bit of electric fence is a, is a, is a good deterrent, a uh, humane deterrent with that. You know, <laughs> just get a wire of electric fence and, and stake it out and it'll back them up. Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, it's it's coming in the mail, so... Soon, very soon, pigs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, they're yeah. so damn cute. Well, you know, it, um, 
I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. You're trying they to leave. They are. They're adorable. <laughs> oh, well, no, they're adorable and they're smart. And I, I would never want to bring grief on them. Um, I, 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 I used to sit under my tree down there and have herds of them walk by me at night. And that was kind of interesting. And just sitting full meditation, all of a sudden you're in a group of 50 pigs kind of looking at you and then they walk off. You know, hmm. I was never in danger as far as I know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, there, there's something going on out here on the island and, and there are things to be seen and there are places where things are recorded repeatedly and that's where we want to get our instrumentation. I, I've been talking to some folks about doing a stakeout down there at K-Bay and trying to get some initial data. Um, I think it's important to do that. I, I don't mind talking about Calicacua because the place is protected. There, there are people there every day looking out for that place, so you don't, I don't worry about things being destroyed or hurt like I do with other places I'm aware of that are equally as active. But, but right. there are people who worship there and respect that. Right. You know? And there's archaeology there that could be destroyed. It's important. And so I, I kind of keep that one close to my chest. But, but this other one, I mean, game's on. You know, and this, there, there are lights and stuff that are seen in the bay. There are light phenomena that are seen around and also above in the sky. Uh, it just depends on, on when you're there and how much you're paying attention. Right. Um, but I, I, if I was going, if I was going to tell people a, a place to stake out, that's one of them. There's a lot of them. Hmm. Well, let's get to staking. Ted, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for opening up personally and thanks uh, again for um inviting me to come here because uh apparently i never wanted to leave because i'm <laughs> i've been here since 2012 <laughs> and I, I have you to thank for that well you know i you, you took me up on that with 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 that challenge around michael sala <laughs> you know and and i i had told you that you know M- michael sala was selling 1750 dollars trips to go swim with dolphins and fix your marriage. And, uh, and I put it out there that if anybody wanted to swim with dolphins, they'd come down, just meet me in Hawaii and I'll take you swimming with dolphins and it won't cost you nothing. And, uh, and you took me up on it. You showed up, you were there at the Monago. I checked in that night, made sure you had your room, came back the next day. We went down to the water and got in with the dolphins. It was, well, you could have set your watch by it. Um, you saved me $1,700. Uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, my pleasure um so yeah yeah and i'm glad you i'm glad it it took for you hawaii isn't for everyone and uh not everybody enjoys it but uh but it looks like you know it made its impression on you i i bought land here um i i, I own a place here now and and uh um i got a place in alaska too i just got that one but 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 you know i i don't mind having my roots here this is this is pretty good <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so aloha. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I ask you one more question that I'll kick myself if I don't ask you? Are you familiar with Jeremy Corbell? Do you know that name? Yes. Okay, because I, yes. I, I know you try not to pay attention to these things. <laughs> but so Jeremy Corbell comes onto the scene through George Knapp, you know, his sort of apprentice or whatever, but is really the mouthpiece of Bob Lazar. And Bob Lazar, as we're told, is not to be taken as a credible person. And yet somehow Jeremy Corbell is the one who is, you know, quote unquote, leaking or whatever, is getting the Navy footage 
and presenting it to the public and is sort of the gatekeeper for a lot of this footage that we're seeing and says things like, you know, there's more to come. He doesn't just put it all out at once the way, you know, he would probably chastise ufologists for not doing unless they were, you know, working for the government or covering something up. Does it make sense to you that Jeremy Corbell would be the guy that uh, Navy people would go to 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 give footage to to disseminate to the public if it was all on the up and up? Short answer, no. Okay. And when I look at that whole situation, Knapp, Corbell, Bigelow, all of that stinks to high heaven. I stay away from it. Um, I've stayed away from all of this, uh, uh, TTSA, all of it, because it, it, it just confounds common sense. And, and that's my first rule. If it doesn't, if it does that, then I walk away. Um, I, I, I don't believe this information should be handled like this in, in ways that ego, stroke people's egos. So if they truly are disseminating honest and real information, then it's, a, it's in a despicable fashion, in my opinion. The, the, this stuff should be an, in an open source database and should be available to anyone that wants to look at it or replicate it or anything. And it shouldn't be held in anyone's hands to, to, for them to aggrandize themselves with. You know, it... it, it this is way more important than that, and, and I, 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 I'm done with fools. I, I, I'm, I want to get to the bottom of this, and, and um, to, to the extent that, that the awareness has been, erased, been raised on the topic, that's a good thing, but how it's been, been raised and a lot of what's been offered as evidence I think is questionable, and um, I, I just steer clear of that whole, that whole situation. Here's a a 30-year story with zero evidence. You were talking about Skinwalker, right? You broke up a little bit there. Yes, I, I, I was. Um, uh, that, okay. That Skinwalker doesn't, you know, 30 years of no data and no no anything. Right. But I can turn around and I can give you 30 years of data, papers, transparent researchers, and an unmonetized open site in Hestel in Norway with Erling and Dr. Chiodorani and their associates. And so where am I going to go? Am I going to go listen to Bigelow and these guys hold a flashlight under their chin and talk about stuff that is outlier data? They aren't talking about UFO data the way we deal with UFO data, the, the way the last hundred years of UFO data have been accumulated and what that represents. They don't deal with any of that at all, um, just a story. And we need to believe George, uh, George now. And I, I'm, I want data. You know, give me the data and stop talking about it. Stop trying to make yourself important with it. Put the data out there so that people would know how to think and use it and look at it and, and get us to the next level. Because in case you hadn't noticed, an alien presence isn't a joke. Right. You know, it isn't here to make you rich. <laughs> you know, it, it's, <laughs> you know, anyway, end of rant. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank you, sir. Alrighty then, that'll wrap her up with Ted Rowe. Um, just want to, well, let me state right up front here that I did reach out to Leslie Kane for comment and have received no response back yet. So if that's important to her, I guess she'll respond. If not, then not. Um, this is just hilarious to me because honestly, this type of thing, this would have been uh, podcast gold back in the Jeff Ritzman, Jeremy Vaney days of Peritopia. But um, now I just don't care. Like, I'm really glad 
to have an outlet for Ted to be be able to be comfortable to say these things publicly and get them off his chest. Um, although here's a funny side note to that. Um, when the interview was done, he said to me, uh, so I, I think I gave you a real scoop there. I was like, yeah, you sure did. And he said, yeah, I have never spoken publicly about smoking weed before. I said, Ted, that one's not shocking, buddy. <laughs> That's not the scoop. But okay, thanks for that too. I guess there's two scoops of raisins in this raisin brand. Um, so, yeah, I wish Jeff had been here to be in on this interview. And although he would have probably lit up or in some way after because of, you know, the tell-all stuff. I think he really would have engaged with, um, and in fact, we might not have even gotten to it because he would have engaged with um, the more the technical side uh, of issues that I am just incapable of speaking about um, and or not as interested in. So such questions don't occur to me at the time. And then I think to myself after, ah, you know, I at least wish I had asked him blank. <laughs> I don't know what. Well, I guess one question I, I wish I would have asked him, and I know Jeff would have asked, is these new this new instrumentation he's talking about on these planes that are seeing more. Are they seeing more artifacts? Um, are they picking up more artifacts on the equipment, or um, are they actually picking up things that are flying around? Um, do we know that yet? How new is this new equipment? I mean, but that's really the only thing that comes to mind, and I know Jeff would have had about an hour's worth of um, legitimately interesting questions. So, uh, but I will um, say here just at the end, um, in terms of what Ted Rowe says about not feeling uh, appreciated in this and being in it because he's an experiencer and therefore suffering through the muck and the mire and the attacks and everything that comes your way when you become public in this because he's an experiencer. I completely relate to that. I mean, hell in February, I tried to quit ufology and then 13 days later, Jeff passed away and, and you know, now here I am doing this. So, um, and I'll, you know, my frustrations were similar, if not the same, well, not the same exactly, you know, not the same people, let's say, but the same, but the same people, if you know what I mean. I mean, to my mind, all of these frauds are the same person. All of these grifters are the same person. Um, they might as well be right. Uh, all these people who seek and get the spotlight from a very large audience that claims to care about this subject. And you've heard me gripe about this before, and I'm sure you'll hear it throughout the years of Paratopia here. Jeff and I both griping about this, so I won't belabor it now. Um, the other thing that I relate to, of course, is something that I really don't... Um, I mean, I talk about, but I guess I, I don't focus on as much anymore, which is the terror you know, when Ted talks about having post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety disorder and all that. And of course, it's hard. He mentioned his childhood and it sounds like uh, there's both quote unquote normal childhood uh, issues and, you know, probably abuse, I'm assuming, of some form. And then there's the uh, so-called alien or the high strangeness stuff. 
and it's probably hard to parse out what comes from where, you know, in terms of one's own personal psychological baggage or psychological makeup uh, due to abusive situations and terrifying situations. But um, I think it's great that he's willing to talk about it publicly. I think um, for me, I've said this many times before, um, this stuff, this uh, paranormal stuff, whatever you want to call it, high strangeness, uh, became at the forefront of my mind um, in the eighth grade. And so I went through all of the, the terror stuff from about eighth grade into college and probably beyond, but I feel like I got it out early compared to other people who deal with it later in life. Um, So not that the terror, not that feeling terror in, in these things is a phase because certainly um, the experiences I had later in life were terrifying. It's just that um, I think I have an easier time with it and and am more willing to understand it in a larger context than people who don't want to understand it have. Uh, and I would put Ted in that category. And I, here, I guess I wish we were still talking during the show, but I just I ran out of gas. I thought we were done and then... Um, we kept going, but maybe we'll do another episode uh, if he's willing and we can talk about this stuff. Cause I've always thought this about Ted and you know, he didn't talk about his experience uh, that's that terrified him on this show, but I think he did on a later episode of Paratopia. So I think you'll be hearing it coming up eventually. Um, but I know in talking to him about it, he has no want to see it any other way, at least at this point. Um, because terrifying means that there is a terrorizer, right? Like that's an easy go-to. And so you kind of have to see past it. And the way a lot of people see past it, as he noted in this, is to say that it's a transformative experience. But for him, it wasn't transformative. It was, um, you know, taking a wrecking ball to his mental stability, to his psyche. And I guess I would um, say that that is transformative. (laughs) That that is what that is. Um, you know, when someone has a shamanic journey that they perceive themselves being torn apart by demons or whatever it is, and then reconstituted, um, I bet that's terrifying. I've never gone through that, but I bet that's terrifying and horrifying and all of that, but it's within a context of a journey. And so when you come to, and you come back to normal and you're talking to your shaman about it or to the group of people you're with or whatever it is, um, it's already contextualized for you in a safe, nurturing, healthy environment. But if it wasn't, just say you happened upon some sort of hallucinogen that brought you to that space where you thought you were being torn apart for no reason by evil. You would um, just think that that was what happened, right? That would be the the go-to because that's kind of what happened. (laughs) Uh, It wouldn't be part of a larger reconstitution hero's journey or whatever necessarily. That part's kind of given to you as an explanation. And in ufology, we don't have that. We don't have the other side of um, the explanation part. Uh, And the people who generally try to give that to us are like new age grifters. You know, this is just what it is where they give you the love and light stuff. Cause we're not talking about love and light. We're talking about um, 
you know, maybe closer to the Zen master whacking you with a stick. Uh, Not exactly that, but I think closer to that. Or at least I think the effects, if that's not the intention by whatever this intelligence is, the effects can be that for you. You can integrate this into your life in a way that is healthy. Um, Healthier than PTSD and anxiety. Um, And it sounds like Ted is um, using a Buddhist technique to do just that in some way. Um, But I would even ask and... I hope Ted's listening to this because I would like to talk to him about this. When you do the Buddhist stuff, is that to just deal with the fear and the anxiety and the terror, or is it to completely understand yourself and the situation so thoroughly that the fear dissolves on its own? So in other words, the difference between understanding so that it it leaves, the, the problem of it leaves, um, versus really a type of repression that feels good for a while, but ultimately it's still there. It's just controlled, I guess is a way to put it. So that you have to constantly be struggling to get into a headspace or get into a, a place where you feel in control, where you feel like you've got this, uh, versus, again, not having that be an issue at all. That doesn't mean it's not an issue in the face of the enigmatic other, uh, because it is, it still is an issue. And I mean, as I've been talking about for years, it seems to me that this terror isn't necessarily a product of what's happening. Um, it can be, it, it can be that what you're going through sounds terrifying and all that, but there is something about just being in this presence in the presence of this, that, it's like a, an allergic reaction of fear, um, but not just everyday fear, like deep down body. Um, these things could annihilate my soul <laughs> if they wanted to terror, which is not an endorsement of the soul. It's just a, I'm saying, you know, it's a metaphor. It's like that. Anyway, I just wonder if Ted would be open to this or open to having this discussion. Cause it seems like even when we were talking about, uh, Turtle Islanders, you know, Indians, not really fond of saying Native Americans because America is not native to America. Uh, But that there is more to what they have to say that runs deeper. I mean, unless he's talking to people and and not getting the same sense of it that I am um, from these people. You know, uh, but I, I tend to think that there is more to it and that they did have a more peaceful cohabitation with whatever this is. You know, as Teokas and Ghost Horse said on this show, I believe, Indians don't get abducted. <laughs> Meaning people of that mind, you know, obviously there would be like, you know, presumably Indians who have um, adopted the Western mindset or been brainwashed into it who may experience alien abductions, but real authentic heart culture natives, uh, those who never broke off with nature, um, don't get abducted. They have a different, in fact, when they do ceremony, they leave a space for these beings, you know, this sort of thing. Now that doesn't mean that they have all the answers, but it does mean that like they don't have a word for alien and 
Ted had said this about UFOs, you know, in Australia, there's no word for UFO. Well, that might be because they don't use cold language to describe these things. There is no sense of alien because there is no sense of other, at least as far as the Lakota are concerned. Um, everything is inclusive. Everything is family. And I almost wonder if, um, like he was talking about Bigfoot, you know, if it would be the same sort of thing in a way where they have more of a relationship with this, but they don't ask the same types of questions that uh, like a scientist would of these beings or this intelligence because they don't have those same cares. It's not about like, where did you come from? What are you riding in? You know, do you, are you into NAFTA? Do you do capitalism? Can we trade? You know, like all that sort of stuff. Um, I think there's a, probably a more humble, uh, silent knowing, but th that's just my guess, but that that's enough, you know? I mean, this is all my guess, but that that would be enough. There would be no need for all this neuroticism and getting to know you BS that we, that we do. And it's BS because we're frauds. <laughs> the shallow self with which we meet the world ain't even really us. So one would hope that advanced anyone out there uh, might even be operating from a different uh, mind space than that and know us better than we know ourselves, even if they just got here, for instance. Um, but these are just, you know, these are things to talk about. These aren't hard and fast rules. At the end of the day, this is all unknown. Some of it may be unknowable. I just think it's unfortunate that, you know, we all have to feel like, at least in this society, that we have to pigeonhole this into something logical, which would be aliens, you know? Little people just like us or similar enough, something that we can identify with like we do ourselves. Therefore, they, you know, might have good and bad intentions and be evil and be terrorizing us on purpose or whatever it is. Um, because the translogical is mixed up with the illogical. The translogical, that which transcends and includes logic, has logic to it, to our mind, may have a logical anchor, but is, you know, a fuller expression of being. But we don't have that in this, at least in this society. I mean, maybe others do. I don't know, because I'm not a part of them. But in this one, we don't. And so when we see translogical, um, we often confuse it with illogical, but more likely we express illogical. We express wish fulfillment in garbage. Because we think that the big transcendent thing that transcends logic is like, you create your own reality, huckle buckle chuckle. I mean, how, how easy would that be, <laughs> right? I got news for you. You do create your own reality, and you're seeing it right now. <laughs> Insurrectionists on the 6th, they created their own reality. Plandemic people who refuse to get vaccines, they're creating their own reality. Um, and how's it going? <laughs> right? And that's that's on just the the like obvious delusional scale. But then there's just, you know, the ordinary common delusional scale that uh, our society is, which is. Uh, we're all just about to go extinct. 
from our excesses and from that which we claimed was evolution, science, technology, but wasn't. I mean, really, is just an extension of our clutter, an extension of our wants and our war and our separate self-sense. And that's killing us. We're killing us. And we're doing nothing about it or next to nothing about it. How many environmentalists are even asking native peoples around the world who do live with Earth and never broke off? And, you know, wouldn't they be the perfect people to ask about, like, protecting the environment? But are they in the conversation? This is the problem. This is a problem. The mind breaks stuff, and then the mind wants to fix that stuff. And that same mind can't because that mind breaks stuff. That's what that mind does. Of course, this is a longer discussion and more of an hour undoing radio discussion, that show. If anyone listens to that, um, we talk about those types of issues there. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to I just wanted to comment on that a little bit here. And again, I'm glad Ted is feeling better. I think it's unfortunate that he felt so left out, not just by ufology, which is what they do. But by NARCAP, which is supposed to be better than. <laughs> That's supposed to transcend and include ufology, right? Um, these are the big, brilliant minds. And, you know, it sounds to me like they just didn't care what was going on with him so long as he was being productive, right? Like, why, why rock that boat? If Ted's going to stay up till 3 in the morning and do emails. Who cares if he's in a bad mood? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's Ted's take, it seems. I don't know if it's completely true or not, but I suspect, based on human behavior um, in this society, and in ufology in particular, that, yeah, that's, he's likely correct. Um, But either way, that he had to feel that for so many years. I'm just sorry that you did, man, and I'm glad you're feeling better, so... With that, next week, Dennis McKenna makes his first appearance on Peritopia and leaves a big and lasting impression with Jeff and moi. Get ready, get set. Take care, everyone. Love you, Jeff. Jeff.